by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. Racial justice is climate justice. Climate justice is racial justice. It's always been that way for me. Go back into low-income, poor neighborhoods, black and brown neighborhoods, uh, and if you can't tell me it's not it's not a, a racist policy for companies to do what they've done in our community. You can't tell me that Flint didn't come from policies that didn't care about the citizens of Flint. Um, who now many are have lifelong illnesses as a result of, of lead. Uh, and so you that was an issue of racial justice, but it was always an, also an issue of climate justice. That's Representative Barbara Lee, U.S. Representative for California's 13th Congressional District. She is our guest today, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Well, let me just say this. I'm so excited to have my dear, dear, dear friend, Shiro, Hero, um, someone who has been just an amazing um, man. I just can't tell you how awesome she is. She is she's just an amazing figure for Black people, for this country, for Americans. And she is none other than Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, how are you? Well, Reverend Hewitt, I'm doing doing fine. I worry about how everybody else is in the country, really, and throughout the world, given what we're dealing with with this Trump administration. But I'm so glad to talk with you and to know that you're still on the case because the work you've done on Capitol Hill with the hip hop hip hop caucus has kept us on point. And this is really about young people. This is about the future. This is about our planet. This is who's going to inherit the land. And so you made sure that early on. Uh, that uh, members of Congress understood their uh, knew what their marching orders were. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really happy that uh, you're you're still doing the work, the quote Lord's work. Okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, thank truly you. Is. Well, thank you so much. Well, I, I, I want to. This is this is an important conversation because, as we know, we created this this conversation to really showcase people of color. Um, black and indigenous and people of color in the climate movement. We really wanted to have leaders uh, that weren't being responded to. So first and foremost, um, what what does the environment mean to you? Well, first, I'm a person of faith. And so as a person of faith, it means protecting and taking care of God's planet. And we've got to take care of God's planet for those who inherit the planet. And that's for the people and the animals and the water and the land. And okay, so I start from there. Uh, Secondly, um, it's really important as a um, public health issue also, uh, because environmental racism, and I'll share a story with you, has impacted my family, my community, black and brown black and brown communities throughout uh, the country. Uh, And so really it it is also a a health issue. And it's an issue of uh, just basics like clean water, clean air, you know, uh, getting uh, 
not relying on fossil fuels, you know, dealing with lead, you know, poisons that are in, um, you know, the water and in, you know, the, um, in some communities that have, like in uh, Flint, that have just devastated communities with long-term health impacts. So it means a heck of a lot. And I, I come, I've been an environmentalist since I was a little girl. And, and let me tell you why. I lived in El Paso, Texas. And um, as a child, El Paso, probably 2% African-American population. And now maybe 25 3%. So we lived in a community with, with black and brown people, right? And our SoCo, it was a plant, a smeltering plant. They cited that plant in our community. And and lawsuits, NPR did a radio, an expose on this a few years ago, but it took like 50 years to get them to shut down. But in the meantime, that smelter, that poison, poisoned everyone in my neighborhood. Very few people who grew up with me are still alive, and it was because of that. Very few people are healthy because of that. My sister has MS. My grandfather developed lung problems, bronchitis. My mother developed COPD. There's a clear relationship to, to my growing up in El Paso, Texas, and that pollution, and my friends having health issues or dying before their time, really, uh, you know, in terms of dying young. And so as a child, you know, I couldn't quite figure out why in the world everyone was getting sick all the time. And as I grew older, I realized that this is what they do to us. This is what corporations do and how they do it. They put toxic dump sites in our communities. They put smelters in our communities. They put smokestacks. They just do us in, in a lot of ways and don't really respect us or care about us. So taking that, and then I was a Girl Scout and a Brownie, and I mean, I was always outside. <laughs> and I went on hay rides and and I was always planting, okay, because I thought that, um, you know, I had to learn more about the earth. Mm. And so as a child, I just grew to just, it was a natural thing to want to want to see life and to see uh, our planet protected and to see uh, streets clean and to see our communities safe and clean. And, and so that's kind of how it got started for me. And uh, of course, here we are now, and of course, you know, I'd support the Green New Deal and everything else that would uh, really make sure that uh, climate change um, and, and global warming um, is that our strategies are based on science and not based on anything else. So that's mm -hmm. kind of where I come with to. No, thank you for that. And I, I want to get to the Green New Deal. But before that, I want to get to just what you just mentioned. And, you know, the, a lot of people who will, who will hear this would listen to this from our communities, our, our friends from civil rights communities. Um, many of folks who are in the, in the anti-war movement. And we know that sometimes our progressive movement can be, can be siloed. So my, my, but, but we've seen so many of like you and, our, and your colleagues, um, particularly the, the, the women in Congress who are getting this uh, A plus scores, <laughs> just doing great. Um, and, I'm on the board of, of, of the League of Conservation Voters, where we give out the scorecard. And we see repeatedly, over and over, um, the members of the Special Black Caucus getting high scores. Why, why is that? Particularly when sometimes this isn't put to them as their main issue. Why, why is it that particularly uh, the, the, the Black members of Congress and the, and the brown members of Congress have this outstanding scores regarding climate? Because we get it. 
as black people, we understand what this is about, just like I described and more. But let me tell you, we're not really siloed. The white progressive movement never embraced our issues in terms of environmental justice. So it's not that we're siloed. I've been working on this since the 70s in terms of trying to get mainstream white progressive groups to embrace um, uh, environmental justice as part of the agenda. We're making a lot of progress now, but let me tell you, it's taken with you, yourself, and it's taken so many people to just get them to where they broaden the definition of, of the environmental movement. And so my colleagues in the Congressional Black Caucus, many are people of faith. They understand that we're here to, to protect uh, all things that God made. Uh, many see this as a health issue and have, have the impacts of family communities have been impacted by what I just described, not just in El Paso, Texas, but everywhere in the country. And so they're natural environmentalists. And I think, uh, so that's probably why you see our scores, because we get it just instinctively and we're smart about it. I mean, I don't know if you've heard Reverend Emmanuel Cleaver talk about uh, climate change. He knows how to break it down. He, he educates members of Congress if they aren't quite sure, uh, carbon emissions or getting rid of fossil fuels or whatever, developing a green um, economy or environmentally sustainable jobs, They, you know, to... And and we understand that the choice is not environmental protection uh, or job creation. We understand you, you do both at the same time. And you don't silo that in terms of we're either environmentalists or fighting for economic growth and jobs. And so I think the Black Caucus, again, the conscience of the Congress, and we've always been way, way, way ahead of most. And so <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a natural thing, I think, for CBC members. But thank you, because nobody ever, ever acknowledges that. No, and I, I think it's one of the main things that we have to change because we're seeing, particularly when people are seeing people like Congressman AOC, how that how that has an impact for young people. And what we need to see, that's why I, I'm sorry, I'm so excited to have this, this talk with you because I need people to hear from the amazing Congressman Barbara Lee to hear that that you've been, you're not new to this. You this, this is not new. No, <laughs> no this is not, I mean, this comes goes back to the way of the day for me. Then, as an elected official, when I in the '90s, when I was in the state assembly and state senate, and now Congress, but I worked for Ron Delms. Ron Delms was one of the strongest environmentalists in the country, you know, and he fought like you would not believe to get people to understand why the white progressive movement to understand why they needed to be more inclusive and to broaden the base in terms of. Uh, issues of black and brown communities and low-income communities. And so this is nothing new for us. Uh, it's just, I'm so pleased and happy and excited that we have now the squad with us who take no prisoners and who really uh, amplify, because you know, like we do this work and we've been doing it for years and nobody said, oh yeah, CBC has been leading, but now is the moment that uh, they've arrived. And, uh, but everyone needs to understand that a lot of what um, what they're champion, we've been champion and we've been fighting for. For CBC's been around next year's fifty years, wow. and you go back and look at the agenda of the Congressional Black Caucus on each and every single issue that now is before the public. The Congressional Black Caucus has been leading on forever. Well, we're going to package this up right here and make sure everybody and one of those big greens hears this, hear what you just said, because they need to hear that verbatim. Uh, you know, Congressman Lee, you talk about shaping policy 
I know you've been, you tweeted out recently how the climate crisis is real, it's solvable, but you mentioned that the solution is the Green New Deal. So if you, right now, I, I want to give you the opportunity to speak to our people about this actually, what is the Green New Deal? And why is it, why is it to you believe that it is the solution to moving this process forward? Well, I think the Green New Deal, first of all, it's bold, it's visionary, but what it does is, unlike a lot of other environmental legislation, it embraces a green economy, which means job training within the green sectors. It means putting resources in terms of uh, restorative justice. It means helping build uh, sustainable, helping create sustainable development as well as helping to reduce carbon emissions, get rid of fossil fuels, and all of the other traditional strategies. We know returning to the Paris Accords, uh, but we speak about clean water and clean air and communities that have been negatively impacted. And so I think the Green New Deal is the roadmap. Now we may have bits and pieces of it coming in different forms and different pieces of legislation. But I think why the Green New Deal is so important is it's comprehensive and it lays out the roadmap and it, it got, it's a guidepost to what we should do to, to get to, uh, to reducing uh, and to impacting uh, climate change. And, and I'm really, I was one of the first original co-sponsors of the Green New Deal. Everybody said, oh, politically, that's what I said, look, come on, it's time. And so I was, standing right there next to AOC, Bernie, and Senator Markey as, as we uh, introduced the Green New Deal on the Senate side. I'll never forget when we had that press conference and people were really kind of like, wow, why are you doing this now? And boom, boom, boom. But history shows that um, AOC and the Green New Deal legislation is pushing the other bills on climate. And that's what we have to do is use this as what is, and I want to see the entire Green New Deal implemented. Uh, but the politics of it warrant us that we have to, you know, negotiate. But we also lifting, we're lifting out pieces of, of the Green New Deal and putting it in, in other bills and moving it forward. So it's a really important piece of legislation. And I would hope that those of you who are um, listening would get in touch with your members of Congress and uh, ask them to sign on to it. As we connect the dots, some, some people in, we had recently have been talking about a, a black, red, and green New Deal. And just the connection that climate justice is racial justice and racial justice is climate justice. And right now, just the connection between the movement for black lives and the climate movement. And I know you particularly this, I mean, you you love us like nobody else. You love your people and you love this country like none other. So it, maybe you can help to connect those dots. Like with, when people talk about the connection that that climate change is a civil rights issue. We have a right to clean air, a right to clean water. What does that mean to you? Yeah. Racial justice is climate justice. Climate justice is racial justice. It's always been that way for me. And, and I go back again to El Paso, go back into low-income, poor neighborhoods, black and brown neighborhoods. Uh, and if you can't tell me it's not, it's not a, a racist policy for companies to do what they've done in our community. You can't tell me that Flint didn't come from policies that didn't care about the citizens of Flint. Um, who now many are have lifelong illnesses as a result of, of lead. 
uh, and so you that was an issue of racial justice, but it was always an, also an issue of climate justice in terms of the lead. And when you look at um, you know how uh, where where we live, and when you look at um, issues around uh, access to uh, well food deserts, I mean that's a racial to, to grocery stores. That's a racial justice issue. So we have to think big in an intersectional way because the jobs that are coming out of creating a green new economy, if we don't have black and brown people being trained for those jobs, which is a racial justice issue, then it'll be another example of, of another industry, the environmental uh, green industry being racist in terms of systemic racism. So we have to see this in, in a racial justice. I look at every single thing through <laughs> a racial justice equity. Race in America is a factor. And we've got to remember that. This is just 401 years <laughs> since the first enslaved Africans were brought to this country. And so I have a bill, H.R. 100, I'm trying to get passed, with, which calls for a Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission and H.R. 40, which is reparations. And so we have to see all of this, everything in this country, both in the public and in the private sector, with a racial lens. That's part of how you evaluate fairness. Uh, if you think it's race neutral or if you don't, or if you say race doesn't matter, then you're missing the ball. So yeah, climate, the climate crisis is a crisis in racial justice also. That's fantastic. And so and I know you've spoken about that and about the link between that, reparations and other things with the Green New Deal. Uh, but, but let me ask you a question specifically about what's going on now. We have a, mm-hmm. uh, a climate denial. And hopefully that will change. Hopefully that will change. It has to change. There's been a lot of destruction in regards to the Environmental Protection Agency, um, in regards to how we we rolling back the the clean air, the the, the car stands, all those things have been just rolled back under this administration. What what needs to be done on day one to to rebuild so that the the, the Environmental Protection Agency which now more of a polluters protected agency. Yeah, that's be right. Back, be back to being an environmental protected agency. What can be done on day one to kind of, what's the plan on your side and from in Congress to get us back on track? Yeah, well, you know, in so many ways, the Biden-Harris team, and I hope everybody listens going to vote because this is, you know, not, I will, will say yes, the most important election of our lifetime, but this election is about life and death. Okay, and I've never said that about an election before. And so on day one, they're going to have to deal with this pandemic. They're going to have to get this under control because too many people are dying. Uh, This administration has lied over and over and over again and is responsible now for over 200,000 deaths. And so Biden and Harris have got to do that on day one in terms of truth telling, in terms of making sure everyone knows what the protocols are. They may have to mandate masks to keep people alive you know they're going to have to do a lot but in terms of environmental we we have to go back and restore all of the damage that they've done so that the, all of the environmental regulations that we passed over the last few administrations uh, especially during the obama administration we need to that they dismantle we need to restore right away i mean we need to do that and then secondly we need to have in mind who we would recommend to be at uh, EPA administrator. I mean, this is a big agency. It has a lot to do with our lives. And so start thinking about who would be that person 
And I think that's going to have to be, we're going to have to weigh in on that uh, Black community, Latinx community, API community, on who we think would be a good um, you know, administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency. So we got to get the right people there, and we've got to undo everything that they've done and uh, then begin to build on building a Green New Deal through the Environmental Protection Agency as a partner. Man, personally, I just have two more questions for you. Mm-hmm. And I guess, and the first question is really for young people. Um, you know, you did something back in 2001 in which you were the, the lone congressperson to stand up against the, 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 the authorization of the war in Iraq. And you've been proven right for that, um, but it took courage. And I know you talk a lot about that, and we have a lot of young people now who are out in the streets right now. And they are, I mean, it's a different movement, but they still need to hear about that courage and about what it, what it means to sometimes be alone and feel that pressure. If you can just kind of speak to them right now, I think that'd be just give, give them a word that they can kind of understand what it meant for you to make that kind of uh, uh, decision back then. Well, first, I have to say to all our young people, thank you very much, because you are truly transforming this country and keep it up. Keep the pressure up. Uh, and I always said we needed more street heat. But, you know, every time, every year, more street heat, please. Let's get hit the streets. And our young people are putting that street heat on elected officials now, and they are not going to stop. And so I just want to encourage them to keep going because this is a marathon and and it's not going to happen overnight. But just know that a lot. Of people don't even now. I was the only one on appropriations committee, for example, talking about every single funding that we would appropriate for whatever program. I said, well, how is this going to create more racial justice, or how is this going to help dismantle systemic racism? Everybody would look at me like, like, what? Why are you talking about this on, uh, you know, a policy on healthcare? I said, because we have disparities uh, as it relates to black and brown people. And I want to know through a racial lens. So I'm saying now everyone on appropriations committee is asking that question <laughs> and it's talking about race and systemic racism, just in a shift in three months. Okay. So <laughs> it's amazing. Everybody. So just know that for me, many times I've been out there by myself, but then you know, you got to keep it up and realize that uh, this is a marathon and, and keep the pressure on and keep doing what you're doing. I voted against that blank check because it was a 60 word authorization to use force right after the horrific events of 9-11. And it was a, a policy, an authorization to use military force that gave any president, and I don't mean just a Republican Bush, any president the authority to go to war forever. Now, the Constitution requires Congress to authorize the use of force, not giving the president authority to go to war. This authorization has been used like 40 sometimes, okay? Even for domestic spying, (laughs) believe me. And so, you know, it was hard. I'm not gonna say it wasn't, it was a 60 word authorization, but I knew that I'm a military brat. My dad was in the military 25 years. So I know what it means to send young people to war. And you're not going to give me a resolution three days after this horrific, terrible, uh, terrible attack and tell me that we're going to all rush to judgment and not think through our response. Because I do know violence begets more violence. And so, and that's, I'm not a pacifist. And so, you know, I thought you, you just can't do this three, after, three days after. You can't give the authority to just go to war. This is going to be forever. And 
fast forward, it's, we're in the state of perpetual war now. And it, this president, any president, can use that authorization with they, which they've used to bomb, to go into Libya. They've used it for Somalia. They've used it in Yemen. They've used it everywhere in the world. Now, for me personally, I had, there were death threats. It was a horrible time. I had that security. I mean, it was, it was bad. It, it, woo, it was mean. But, and this too shall pass. And so, you know, you have to, when you believe in something, you have to stand for what you believe in and you have to keep fighting. And one thing about my beloved Ron Delms, uh, I worked for him for 11 years and he said, you know, if you're right, if your conscience tells you you're right, if, you're, if your faith, if your constitution, whatever you use as your barometer, then you do it. And then sooner or later, you just stand on that corner and folks will come right to you. Now, fast forward to today, I've gotten that repealed. <laughs> you know, I've been working on it for 20 years, getting that authorization repealed. This year I was able to get it repealed, but it's over in the Senate now, and the Senate is following Donald Trump's order, so we're going to have to start over again in January. But I've built the support over the years with your help and with the help of our, our activists, where members of Congress now are being held accountable and they're voting yes with Barbara Lee to repeal this authorization. But that didn't happen overnight. And so that's why I want to encourage our young people to know that uh, this is a long-term struggle. What you're doing today, uh, you know, you may not see it happen tomorrow, but you'll see it happen quicker than I've seen things happen in my lifetime. I mean, when I started school, I couldn't go to public schools because they were segregated. My mother almost died in childbirth because they wouldn't admit her to the hospital and I almost didn't get here into this world, and she almost died. And so change has happened over the years, but it hasn't happened fast enough for me. But just know that Fannie Lou Hamer, John Lewis, Ida B. Wells, uh, Harriet Tubman, uh, Frederick Douglass, Malcolm X, you name it, uh, Marcus Garvey. I mean, they didn't fight for racial justice and equality and equity for nothing. They paved the way so that we could be talking today, you mm. know? And so, <laughs> so it's hard. For everybody, it's hard for me to see the clock being turned back. But do you know if those heroes and sheroes had not done what they have done, we'd be, we never would have gotten out of slavery. Mm. You know, and even though now we're into another form of it, but we never would have gotten out of that form of, of being enslaved. And so, you know, we got to keep this going. The fight continues. Nah, thank you. That's just my last question for you. Mm -hmm. This is actually something I want you to kind of, one of those kind of this, I know you are just a, a spiritual person. You are a, 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 an embracing person. You are a loving person. So I, I guess this is kind of a question, almost in a, in a, like a time capsule and question. Um, you know, I, I know without a doubt, many people, Congressman Lee, will, will look back and look, look at Shirley Chisholm and we look at all those who came before. We will look at you the exact same way. So <laughs> many, many, no, that is facts. And, and um, many people, at least my hat here, uh, it says 10 years, because that's what I said. So we said we have, you know, with the, the climate reports that we had about 10 years before, we, we get the climate adaptation. So my question really to you is this. If you can think about yourself and think about people looking at this video 100 years from now in 2110, and they and they're no and they 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 have clean air, they have clean water because of what we did, or whatever we're going through, racism. If you can speak to that generation, 
um, and leave something for, that they can know something about, not just about Congressman Barbara Lee, but about Barbara Lee, what you want to leave to them, a word for them into the future. What would you want to tell them? I would want to tell them uh, to do for others. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't buy into this selfish, arrogant, it's, it's me and only me kind of deal. Don't, don't only be responsible for yourself. Try to help others. Whatever the issues are 100 years from now, don't think just because you made it that uh, you're okay, that the world's okay. You have to bring people behind you, with you, and you have to break ceilings and you have to shatter barriers for others. So don't, don't think that you're in this world just to look out for yourself. Look out for others, look out for your community, be for real, be authentic. And um, you know, that is, really brings you true happiness. It really does. Uh, and uh, the Dalai Lama, I had a chance to uh, introduce the Dalai Lama one day in Berkeley. And it was very moving for me because he, I sat right next to him the entire hour. And the Dalai Lama, his, the topic of his um, lecture, which was almost a sermon, was how to treat, achieve true happiness. And he went through all the notions of materialism and, and all the ways we think will the path to true happiness. But bottom line was the path to true happiness is serving and helping others and doing uh, for others to make them happy and to make them live, to give their lives the quality that they deserve. And that leads you to being truly happy. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people.